it would be great to keep uh, Ephesians 2 open. I'm going to pray for us as we read God's word together. Sovereign Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us. Uh, We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who's shown us what it is for you to love us. We pray tonight that you would help us to, to get a grip on what it is for you to love us, to be gracious toward us. We pray that we would see ourselves as we really are and know you and put our faith in you and live for you. Amen. Uh, I've been told that I look a little bit like the guy from Shaun of the Dead. Uh, Not a massive fan of zombie films. In fact, frankly, uh, since we've had kids, which is about six years now, I'm pretty exhausted, and so the only time I go to watch movies, I want to watch something light and fluffy, chick flicks, uh, where I know that my emotions will be manipulated, and I'll walk away happy, not really having had to think. Um, But... The zombie film, the zombie, the zombie films have had a bit of a run lately. Zombies are the living dead. The living dead, that's what makes them attractive, because they're both alive and dead. And that is the description of people who do not know Jesus in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul opens with this, and it's dark. He says, as for you, there's a bit of finger pointing. Did he say that in 2 verse 1? As for you, as for you, I always want to know what follows that, you were dead. It's not just you, finger pointing. He also, verse 3, says, all of us, all of us. Whatever Paul is saying in these first few verses of chapter 2, before he sets up what God does and then what happens as a result, whatever is true of you, as Paul speaks to the Gentiles, those who weren't part of God's chosen people. Whatever is true of you is true of us. We all, by nature, Paul says, naturally, are objects of God's wrath. Now, that is not a popular thing to say. Uh, When I was 21, I proposed uh, to my then-girlfriend, Leah. We were very young. I look like a 14-year-old in our wedding photos. Um, and I'd never bought any diamonds before, but I decided that it would be appropriate to give uh, Leah a diamond engagement ring, and so I went shopping for diamonds. Uh, when you go shopping for diamonds, it's all behind glass. And so you look through the glass at the diamonds, and you oh, let's have a look at that one. Oh, I can't afford that. How about this one instead? Um, but what happens when the jeweler gets out the diamond is that they roll out this bit of black velvet, and then throw the diamond on top of that. Uh, Without the black velvet, the diamond just sitting on the glass, kind of the same. But on the black backdrop of velvet, the diamond sparkles beautifully. And in Ephesians 2, the beautiful diamond of God's grace is on display in front of the black backdrop of death, of God's rightful anger, his wrath, for you, for us, for me, who have turned our backs on the God who made us. Now, if you don't really believe that we are dead, because, you know, you'd have to say that there are kind of some good signs that we're alive. There are doctors here who can tell you that you're alive, or mostly alive. Um, what are the signs that we are dead, according to Ephesians 2? Have a look at that opening few verses and see what the argument that's building is that we are all facing judgment by God. I think one of the things that will help you here 
is to remember that God is a person. God is not a system. Systems are kind of rules and arrangements and consequences. But God is is Father, Son and Spirit. God is personal. Who do you follow is the question I think these verses bring up. As for you, verse 1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. This idea that God has set out a way to live and we have just stepped over it. God's set a line in the sand or in the garden, depending on how you think about it, and said, this is a good way for you to live. Good for you, good for the people around you, good for the whole world. And we've gone, "Uh, God, don't know what you're talking about. We'll live this way. It's Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the people of Israel when they receive the Ten Commandments. It's pretty much anyone when they receive the command of God. Our nature is to go, really? I think I know better than that. And the result is death, living death. But it's not just transgressions and sins. It's not just stepping over the mark and ignoring God's good command. It's verse 2. It's following someone, following a way. Uh, The way that, that Paul expresses it here is kind of the world, the flesh, and the devil as this kind of threefold combination of following stuff that's in opposition to God. Now, I don't know uh, whether you've seen kids playing follow the leader. You know, one person does something, everyone else is meant to do the same thing. One of the things I love about Ephesians is that it kind of zooms out from just Jesus and his people to the whole world and the whole of time and it lets us see who's following who on a spiritual level. By nature, what are we like? What are you like? What do you follow at heart? Without Christ, what do you do? Listen to this description and see if it rings true for you. You were dead when you used to live this way, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Cravings, desires, the the flesh that just wants to be satisfied in all sorts of ways, just greed. I want what I want. And if you get in my way, I will push you aside. My one-year-old knows that. Get out of my way. I do it. My turn. And we're just more sophisticated in the way we go about it. You are a powerful person. I don't know what your week looks like, but because you're made in the image of God, the way you work in this world is powerful. Your words and your actions are very powerful. I don't know the conversations you had before church at at supper tonight. You can do great harm by your words, by your actions. Sucks when someone turns their back on you. It's a powerful relational statement. You are powerful in what you're going to do this week at work. You will determine what things get built, what people learn. You will determine the way that things run in in an area of people's lives, whether it be governmental, in your office space, in your family, in your... 
you have power to change people's lives because you're made in the image of God. Now, why am I talking about this? Because being dead in sin, one of the fruits of it is that we use this power that we have to gratify ourselves, to do what we think is best. See that theme that runs through verse 2 and 3. You follow the ways of this world, the rule of the kingdom of the air, Satan, who's at work in us. All of us live like that way, gratifying cravings, following desires and thoughts. It's just what we're like. It's disappointing. It's disappointing that we're so kind of pathetic. That if you take a step back and look at what we really seek of our own volition, it's just, on the whole, kind of empty. It's a bit zombie-like. It's just life, but myopic, self-centered, not really producing much great stuff. And on the bigger relational level, what we've done is followed... We've followed someone who said, no, it's right for you to choose your own destiny. It's right for you to indulge yourself. It's right for you to be the one who determines what is right and wrong. It's right for you to to stand on your rights. Because you have rights, inalienable rights, that no one can tell you what to do. That is... A lie if you believe in a sovereign creator God. If God really made everything and is really in charge of the world, will really call everyone to account for the way that we've treated him, remember, personal, not system. If God is sovereign creator, then it's right for us to follow him. He actually knows what's best for us in the same way that the Lego manual knows best how the Lego pieces fit together. The sovereign creator knows best for us how we'll work individually and together to to be something beautiful. By nature, we, you, them, everybody, objects of God's wrath. It is completely right for God to say, you have overstepped the mark, you have turned your back on me, And as a just judge, I will cast you out from my life-giving presence. It's not mean. It's not bitter. It's not done in a hissy fit of rage. It's simply justice. And you know how serious the wrath of God is by looking at the very centre of Christianity. The very heart of what God does shows you both how serious sin is and how great his love is. As this passage goes from what we were to what God does to how that looks, there's that big little word at the start of verse 4. But, it's a little word that's always in the story of when Christians tell the gospel. You were like this, but God, who loved you, did this. And so we're this way. Have a look at verse 4. Feel feel the relational nature of this. 
It's not a system that we're describing here. This is what God did for people who had turned their backs on him. Verse 4, but God, because of his great love for us, being rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. This is the Christian story. Uh, If you've wandered into church tonight, you don't really know what it is to be a Christian. You couldn't say that you've ever asked Jesus to help you follow him, to help him forgive your sins. Ask him to be your king rather than following your own way. This is what's at the guts of Christianity. Grace. What God does when we've deserved nothing but wrath, he loves us. What's grace? Undeserved love. Let me tell you what verse 4 doesn't say. It doesn't say this. Because of his love for us, God who is merciful. Now, that, that'll be true. Because of his love for us, God who is merciful. You've kind of got to feel, feel the adjectives, the adverbs. Feel the overflowing nature of how this is described. In contrast to what we have done to the God who made us. We read in verse 4, because of his great love for us. God who is rich in mercy. Now we'll get to what God does and how it works out, but just pause with me for a minute and ask yourself, what do you think God is like? What is your picture of how God relates to you? Most of my analogies start with the Simpsons. Who do you want? Happy God or angry God? Happy God or angry God? Do you think God is fickle like that, that his temper flares up in a second according to whether you do right or wrong in each particular situation? Do you think God is basically annoyed at everyone and occasionally will deign to accept someone? I have people who've grown up going to church who are convinced that's what God is like because of the way that religion has appeared to them. That makes me devastatingly sad. Because God is rich in mercy and loves to love people. God is the father who's been spurned by the child who wants his inheritance even before the father's dead. When the son comes back having spent it all, he's standing there waiting. God who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us. Whether you've been a Christian forever or whether you're still thinking about Christianity, get this now. Verse 4, God loves you. Whether your life looks like it's all together, whether you're a bit broken right now, whether your faith is in Jesus, whether you've ignored God forever, God still loves you. And when you doubt it, you can look and see what God has done in history that has demonstrated his love for his people. He sent his son to die on the cross. This is the heart of grace. He, God the Father unites his enemies to his son. I'll say that again because it's a bit weird to think about it. When you turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to stop living this way and start living for you. Forgive me, please. 
You get united to Jesus so that what happens to him happens to you. You kind of grab onto Jesus' coattails by faith. You're asking God to treat you not like you deserve, but like Jesus deserves. To have the full rights of the Son of God attributed to you is a good deal, trust me. And so when Paul describes how God has loved us, he actually talks more about what he's done in Jesus than he's done to us. It's a helpful corrective to think that God's more caught up with Jesus than he is about us. Look how God's love is described in verse 5. God who is rich in mercy, verse 5, made us alive with Christ. Made us alive with Christ. That is, Jesus died on the cross, was properly dead, being punished for sin, the wrath that we justly deserved. And yet when God raised him up, we were made alive with him. There's a sense in which putting your faith in Jesus gets you resurrected into a new life just like Jesus had when he came back from the dead. That's why it's so important, by the way, 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, church is a waste of time. We should turn this into a dance hall or lasers up or something. 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. He's still in sin. But Christ has been raised. God raised us up with Christ, verse 6, in case you didn't get it the first time. What did God do? He raised Jesus up to life. And more than that, what does verse 6 say? Seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Now, I don't really understand what this means. Jesus is now with the Father, ruling in heaven. Jesus was always with the Father, became man. That's what we remember at Christmas time. God became man, lived as a baby, humbled himself and was obedient even to death on a cross. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he he was really alive, really human. But he's now sitting at God's right hand, the picture of what you and I will become if our faith is in Christ. And there's a sense in which we are seated with Jesus right now. In the heavenly realms. Now, I don't really understand how that can be. I'll tell you what it isn't. It isn't that you have a body which is here and a spirit which is in heaven. That's bollocks. That's Greek philosophical rubbish. The Bible never talks about our bodies and our spirits in that way. I think what the point is being made is that we are, although here, united with Jesus. Because all the language of Ephesians 1 count the in hymns, in Christ. In Jesus, all the way through chapter 1, all the great things that God has, has done for his people, unite them to Jesus. And so we're sitting in the heavenly realms with Christ, with the kind of the full rights of sonship. You can speak to God. You can draw on his wisdom. You know that you're loved. There's no doubt about where you belong. Now, all that, all that is really good. Sin forgiven, made alive, seated with Jesus. And my temptation is to think that that's just good for me. Now, it's right. It is good for me. It's good for you. You should put your faith in Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I urge you, realize where you stand before God and turn to him in faith. But this is not where the passage ends. The passage ends with a reason for why God is doing this. 
and it's back to my display case story. The reason that God demonstrates his love and has mercy on those he's made is bigger than the fact that he loves us. God's plan for all eternity, described in Ephesians 1, is that everything that he does would display the gloriousness of God's grace, a showcase of grace. And you are part of that showcase. Verse 7. God did these things, raised us up and seated us with Christ in order that in the coming ages God might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Let's read that again. This is the purpose statement. Why did God do all these things? When we were dead, he made us alive. It's by grace you've been saved. Why? In order that. What's God's reason? What is God doing all this for? In order that in the coming ages, God might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to you in Christ Jesus. God wants everyone to see what a gracious God he is. And that's good. I'm not sure who's seeing it now. Uh, Sometimes it feels like God's displaying these things to other spiritual powers that exist, things that we don't understand, to angels. But there will be a day when God demonstrates to everyone who's ever lived, every creature that God has made, the incomparable riches of his grace. That those who are dead, God has made alive and given them a purpose which rolls on into eternity. This is the showcase of God's grace. That's why God is doing this. You're important, you're loved, but you're part of a bigger plan that God has going on to do Ephesians 1 verse 10, to bring all things under Christ, the one who is the center of God's gracious plan. And in case you didn't get that it's gracious, we get the bonus verses of verse 8 and 9. Verse 8, it is by grace you've been saved. This is the showcase, the center of what God is doing. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. Now, faith's not from yourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. How did he get saved? Verse 9, not by works so that no one can boast. There is never a time for anyone to stand before God and say, Look what I've done. Look at mine. There's never a time when you can stand before God and say, you should accept me, God. Even though I've turned away, I've been pretty good. I've helped some people. I've given some money, which was yours to start with. There's never room for us to say, I've tried pretty hard, so you should accept me. If you have friends who've Growing up in churches where it feels like you have to do stuff to impress God, Anglican churches, Roman Catholic churches, people who are part of religions would just say, you've got to do this and God will be happy with you. You've got to tell them the truth about grace. It's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. That God expects nothing from you except your sin. you kind of got to say it to yourself. God God accepts nothing from me except my sin. He's reaching out to rescue you from the predicament you're in. 
like the guy in the rescue chopper, lowering the thing to the guy who's drowning in the water. The guy just has to grab on, get in the thing and get saved. You don't contribute anything. You just get saved. And everyone goes, those rescue guys are great. That's the showcase of God's grace. Now, it would be tempting to finish the sermon there at the end of verse 9 and say, everyone should become a Christian. I'm actually convinced that most of the people here tonight are already Christians. And this is the beautiful old story that you already know. You know God loves you. You know God has a plan to bring all things under Jesus. And you love that God accepts you even though you're a sinner, even though you deserve nothing from his hand. But do you see how verse 10 puts all of this into, well, into practice, really? It's a reminder of how this showcase of grace starts now as you're brought to life in Jesus. Why did God save you? Verse 10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, have you ever read that verse before and thought about it? Why were you saved by Jesus? Why were you brought to life in Christ? Or if you're not a Christian, what's God got planned for you if you turn your life over to Jesus? It's like those weirdos at the beach with the, uh, with the metal detectors. Ooh, 20 cents. The purpose of your life, if you're in Christ, if you've been saved by grace, is to seek out the good that God has prepared for you to do. When church ends tonight, because you've been saved by grace, you don't have to impress God anymore. You've just got this kind of massive drinking well of grace that's been showered on you. And even though you're not perfect, God's just saying, here, here's bucket loads of grace. Go and live it out. Work out who you are, what you can do. Just go and, go and be good. Follow me. Follow Jesus. What did Jesus do? Good. Jesus looked at the people around him and saw what they really needed. And he worked for their good, not just their temporary good, although he worked for that. He worked for their eternal good. You have been created. You are God's workmanship, each of you, all of us, all of them. Anyone who trusts Jesus, created by God, just as you are, to do good. There's a beautiful pluriformity, a beautiful richness to the difference of how God has made us. Like, just spend a moment, just sneak a look over your shoulder. Look at how different the people around you are. Different. People here do different stuff well. It's why not everyone plays in the band. Let me tell you, it's a good thing. It's why not everyone bakes for supper. Also, a good thing. The ones who do it well do it so well. Thank you, soup makers. The ones who play, play beautifully, empowered by the grace that God has workmanshiped them into. Tonight when you leave church, tomorrow when you go to the office to work, to your family, you are to seek out the good that God has prepared for you to do. Not to impress him, not to earn your way into his good books, but because he loves you already. You don't have to worry about God accepting you. He's already done that in Jesus. Go and be good. 
Now, how do you work out what that is? Stay tuned for the rest of Ephesians. Where we were, what God has done, how it rolls out. The point of everything that God does is to showcase his grace. I just want to give you a little teaser as to how this might work out for you this week. I said before that you were powerful, that your words and your actions, the way you relate have real consequences in this world that are really powerful. One of the ways that grace works itself out in the world is by appearing to be weak but actually being strong, like Jesus. Jesus appeared to be weak because he humbled himself and treated other people as more important than himself. This is the pattern that we follow if we follow Jesus. Uh, This week, it will take strength for you to do the good that God has prepared for you. It will take strength that you may not feel you have because it comes from God by grace. It will appear to the people around you that you're an idiot, that you're weak, and that you care about other people more than you care about yourself, and everyone knows that's stupid. But this is what grace lived out is like. The good life is the life that gives up itself knowing we're accepted by grace. And I'm going to pray that we would grasp grace, that we would know God and trust him that this is a good way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to believe this stuff. Help us to believe that you made us. Uh, Help us to realise what we've done in turning away from you and and the deadly consequence of that. Help us to realise that you love us. Uh, Help us to grasp the depth of your mercy shown to us in Jesus. We thank you that you've made secure our future and our present by raising us with Christ and seating us with him. And we thank you that you have a good purpose that's bigger than our trivial purposes. Uh, Father, we ask that you would help us to be part of this showcase of grace that you're displaying to the world. We pray that you would help us to do the good that you've prepared for us to do graciously when it's when it's hard, by the power that you give us by your spirit. Father, give us the boldness and the strength uh, to do that which by nature we cannot do. That your grace might be shown for what it is. Amen.